Well, hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. Today, I'm going to just jump right into content again because I worry it might be a bit of a long podcast once again as we continue working through the doctrine of Revelation. Fortunately, you only have two lectures for this week, so even if they're both a bit longer, the overall content should be briefer. Today, we will be discussing the third perspective beyond Protestant fundamentalism and Protestant liberalism, and that is a perspective known as neo-Orthodoxy. Unlike both of the prior movements who had roots in the 1800s and precedent even long before that, neo-Orthodoxy is truly a byproduct of the 20th century, of the 1900s. And it is associated perhaps most clearly with a theologian known as Karl Barth, often considered to be the most prolific, the most influential, and by some at least, the most gifted of the 20th century theologians. We won't weigh into that debate here today, but I will try and briefly give you an overview of Barth's understanding of the doctrine of Revelation. I'm also going to draw briefly on a theologian named Emil Bruner, who early in his career seemed to be a clear ally of Karl Barth, but who had a dramatic falling out with Barth over the question of the doctrine of Revelation. So here's a quote from Emil Bruner in his book, The Christian Doctrine of God. Bruner writes, Knowledge of God exists only insofar as there is a self-disclosure, a self-manifestation of God. That is, only insofar as there is a revelation. There is a doctrine of God, in the legitimate sense of the words, only insofar as God himself imparts it. The human doctrine of God, which is undoubtedly the doctrine of the church, is thus only legitimate and can only claim to be truth insofar as the divine revelation, that which God teaches about himself, is validly expressed by it. Now I should note that there are several similarities here with Protestant fundamentalism. This is the idea that there is a personal God, that this personal God communicates him in some manner to humanity, and that without this act of revelation, human beings do not possess truth. However, within this revelation, truth can be understood through doctrines. In each of, this, in each of these areas, Bruner is quite distinct from liberalism, which tends to de-emphasize doctrine, as well as de-emphasize the idea of a personal revelation of God directly to the church. Revelation is usually slightly modified there. However, if you begin to peel back things behind uh, the surface of Bruner's quote, you'll find that there are a number of respects in which neo-orthodoxy is, in fact, different from fundamentalism. They may not be as obvious up front, and neo-orthodoxy certainly has targeted liberalism more directly than fundamentalism, and yet it becomes quite clear over time that this perspective is still distinct from the fundamentalist one resulting in later generation fundamentalists directly attacking neo-orthodoxy in the same manner. So just as J. Gresham Machen wrote a book, Christianity and Liberalism, a later book is written by a man named Cornelius Van Til, of lesser significance, known as Christianity and Barthianism. So, with this introduction, let me try and explain what this quote by Bruner is all about by turning to a theologian who shares, in some respects, the basic sensibilities of Bruner. But before I do so, I need to remind us a bit of our discussion under the doctrine of the Holy Spirit 
of natural theology. So, we introduced a distinction between natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation pertains to what human beings can know through the use of reason that is not aided by the working of the Holy Spirit, according to the definition of B.B. Warfield. The Spirit is the one who supernaturally placed revelation in nature, but any human with reason need not be elevated by the Spirit in order to understand God through nature. Natural theology, therefore, is a theology based on this natural revelation, a theology attempting to express doctrines without reference to special revelation or scripture. Sometimes medieval theologians like Thomas Aquinas are understood as masters of natural theology. I personally believe this is a misinterpretation, both because Aquinas does often appeal to faith and special revelation, but also because his more dogmatic texts assume his far more extensive work in biblical commentary. I'll set that to the side, especially for those of you that weren't in Historical Theology 1. But natural theology, again, is theology that attempts to avoid much reference to special revelation. And it's arguably the case that natural theology is found in liberalism's quest for the historical Jesus. For example, we will use reason and the tools of history to determine the truth about who Jesus was, rather than accepting the text of the New Testament as fully authoritative in a verbal plenary sense. Now, the individual practitioner of the quest might still accept this at a personal level, but at the very least, methodologically, meaning in terms of the manner in which scholarship proceeds, human reason and tools through history will attempt to find the truth. Similarly, arguably, a degree of natural theology is found in the existentialism of individuals like Schleiermacher and Bultmann, who attempt to understand natural components of human consciousness, like the quest for authenticity or the natural uh, feeling of absolute dependence, in an attempt to understand religion. Finally, it's arguably the case that natural theology is behind the basic definition of kerygma, what do we count as the core of the Christian religion? Well, we do not there appeal to a certain special revelation of God within the larger revelation of the Bible. Rather, we appeal to arguments from reason and to historical critical methodology in an attempt to identify what this kerygma in fact is. So arguably, much of Protestant liberalism depends on what may be called a natural theology. And it is this natural theology that Karl Barth reacts so strongly against. Now, his initial reaction occurs in a book called The Romer Brief, or his commentary on the book of Paul to the Romans, uh, in 1919. And this is partly a byproduct of his seeing how many Protestant liberals so thoroughly endorsed the war aspirations of the German state during World War I. He believed that the natural theology of these Protestant liberal professors he had in school were, in fact, being held captive to ideologies of the state. So Barth's commentary criticized natural theology in a substantive and heavy manner, to such a point that later theologians commented that his commentary felt like a bomb on the playground of the theologians. Very soon, the fundamental debates of Christian doctrine when it comes to revelation had shifted dramatically to a question of whether or not Karl Barth 
was correct and whether or not natural revelation was possible. So here, very briefly, let me provide you with several arguments that Bart makes for why natural revelation is not possible. I'm going to give you five. First reason, Bart argues that there is an infinite qualitative distinction between God and human beings. God is infinite and we are finite. God is beyond space, we are within space. And even there, our language fails us. The terminology of beyond is itself spatial language. God is eternal, we are within time, and so forth and so on. If God is that being who has created the world, God then stands opposed to the world as someone who is radically other. Bart will call him the unknown God from Acts 17. God is the God that our minds cannot understand because the concepts that our minds have available to them are concepts that refer to space and time and matter and finitude in ways that the words cannot possibly refer to God. So if we are to use pure human reason to try to get to God, we cannot reach God, Bart says. We can only reach what he calls no God, a false God, an idol. Second reason why natural theology fails is because of sin. Sin, Paul teaches, has caused us to have a distorted mind, to no longer know who God is. And therefore, because of sin, we should not express, we should not expect, excuse me, to be able to understand who God is. Three more arguments on the next slide, if you're following along on 7.3. The third argument is that if revelation is based on human ability, on a human potency, on some capability that we have within us that would enable us to reach God, then revelation becomes a human achievement rather than a God-given grace. On the other hand, if revelation truly is grace, then it must be God disclosing himself rather than human beings uh, reaching God through mental effort. Fourth, Bart firmly believes that God's revelation is definitive in Christ. Christ is the self-revelation of God. In Christ, we find the fullness of the Father made flesh in a form that humans can understand. And Bart goes a step further to argue that even human understanding is dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And in fact, Bart unpacks the entire doctrine of the Trinity in the context of discussions of divine revelation. If Christ is the definitive self-revelation of God, the natural revelation that is critiquing who Christ is or attempting to reach God without going through Christ, such natural revelation can only distort the truth. Fifth and finally, of course, Bart will appeal to the fact that the Bible itself testifies that revelation is supernatural and neglects natural revelation. That is such an extensive theme that even if you're trying to find a core of true religion beneath the text of the Bible, there's really nothing of a core left by the time you excise the supernaturalistic elements of the Bible. So in certain arguments, for example, his second and his fifth argument, 
Bart would be putting forward propositions that many fundamentalists would accept. But as we'll see, his first, third, and fourth argument uh, tend to lead Bart in a direction quite tend to lead Bart in a direction, excuse me, quite different from the direction in which folks like Jay Gresham match and go. So I already told you, Bart and Bruner had a bit of a falling out. Bruner has argued in this first quote that we cannot truly know God unless God has revealed himself to us through a self-revelation. But Bruner does not take this idea to quite the extreme that Bart does. So Bruner critiques Bart uh, here and there on Bart's understanding of natural revelation, and Bart responds with a theological book that has perhaps my favorite title, favorite title ever, Nine, which is just German for no. The whole thing is a an extended critique of Bruner and his idea of natural theology. So Bruner believes, <clears throat> excuse me, that the image of God suggests an innate ability to know God. Now this is by grace. God has graciously given us this image and it is supernaturally enabled. But the fact that we have this image means that we have some capability of knowing God. Preserving grace, as Bruner calls it, also allows us some possibility of knowing because God has not annihilated us due to sin, he has continued to allow us to exist, he has also continued to give us the opportunity to know. Third and finally, Bruner says there must be some point of contact in humans for revelation. If revelation is so foreign to humans, then we would not even understand it once it was revealed. For all of these reasons, Bruner will say that there is some minimal space for a natural theology. I share this with you, first of all, to let you know that theologians within neo-orthodoxy broadly construed, and Bruner would fit that category, have a bit of disagreement on how extensive the limits to natural theology are. Though I must say that the vast majority of those in the neo-orthodox camp would side with Bart here. However, I also share this with you as a means of further clarifying what it is that Bart is arguing when it comes to Revelation. So let's look at how Bart responds to Bruner. First, Bart argues that sin completely ruins the material image, so that there is no remaining capacity for knowing God. Perhaps in Adam and Eve, the image of God entailed our ability to know God on our own, but that is no longer the case. We require revelation. Second, it is certainly true that God has preserved us and not annihilated us, but this preserving grace, so to speak, pertains only to our existence. It pertains only to the fact that we have not yet been annihilated. It does not pertain to our knowledge of God. Third, and finally, and this is most decisive for Bart, there is a point of contact in humans for revelation, true, but this point of contact is not in any respect a human faculty. In other words, we can't say that we are able to receive revelation because we have reason. We can't say that we are able to receive revelation because we are created in the image of God, because we speak language, because of fill in the blank. There's no blank pertaining to human nature that explains how it is that we are able to receive revelation. How are we able to receive revelation? Because God has revealed himself in Christ and because God and the Son have sent the Spirit who makes it possible for us to receive that revelation. So having addressed that, we're now able to point out one of the first key arguments here. Neo-Orthodoxy argues against liberalism, 
that we cannot know God by natural reason, only through divine self-revelation. So it would critique any attempt to find the kerygma within the biblical text through the use of historical tools and reason in the manner that liberalism prefers. The source of the Bible is God's self-revelation, and if it is not that, we are left with nothing. Let me spend a moment to try and explain a bit more clearly what neo-orthodoxy means by revelation. Natural revelation cannot allow us to have any reliable knowledge of God. Even Bruner admits this. He'll say we can have some knowledge, but it's very partial and very unreliable. But here's a distinction from fundamentalism. For neo-orthodoxy, revelation is an event. It's not a series of propositions. It's not a series of words and statements. Revelation is the event of the self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The entire life of Christ is the event of God's self-disclosure. Revelation, furthermore, is the continuing event of humans sharing in God's knowledge about God. What Bruner's original quote was trying to be after, and what Bart robustly argues, is that we cannot have a human knowledge of God, because human knowledge is constrained by such things as time and space and human finitude and sin and so forth and so on. If we are to have a knowledge of God, it must be a participation in the knowledge of God about God, which means that we must be brought into God's act of self-knowledge. And it's the Holy Spirit within us that does that. When we are in the Spirit, the event of our sharing in God's knowledge about God occurs. Revelation is the event of self-disclosure in Christ and the event of the Spirit in us making us able to receive that self-disclosure. Well, this raises a question of what is the Word? Fundamentalists would say, well, the Word is the Bible, through and through. Bart would technically say there is a threefold form of the Word. Most properly speaking, the Word is God's definitive self-revelation in Christ. Preaching is the word, insofar it is, it is an event in which listeners encounter Christ the word. So when a pastor preaches or proclaims the gospel, through that event, the Spirit can work that we might know God. Third, the Bible is the record of the historical self-revelation of Christ. And so it is the word when it fosters an event of our perceiving Christ as revealed by God. In other words, you can take approaches to the Bible like historical critical methodology, that do not result in that event of knowing, and therefore which arguably do not have the Bible as revelation of God, but only as an interesting historical text. So, when it comes to the doctrine of revelation, neo-orthodoxy will clarify or critique, perhaps, what Protestant fundamentalism would argue. Though fundamentalism was a nor more North American uh, movement, and neo-orthodoxy was more European. Bart would argue that the word exists in threefold form, preached, written, and revealed. Because of this, Bart will say, he distinguishes the Bible as such from revelation. The Bible is a witness, and as a witness, it is not absolutely identical with that to which it witnesses. So technically, what is revelation? It is God's self-disclosure in Christ, which we are able to receive as what Bart calls revealedness through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible certainly facilitates this as one form of the Word of God, just as preaching does, but technically speaking, the Bible itself 
is not revelation. True revelation is the Son. The Bible is the witness to revelation, not revelation itself. So Bruner, for example, who still fits the broad umbrella of neo-orthodoxy, he will argue that we are not directly confronted with the historical witness of the apostles in its entirety. We aren't given the full history. What we are given is a confrontation by the event of encountering God. The Bible is the record, the witness to that event of the disciples' encounter with God, as mediated to the church through history. So when it comes to the reliability of the Bible, you'll find a different emphasis among neo-Orthodox than you will among fundamentalists. Fundamentalists will argue that the Bible is inerrant. It is without error in its original autographs. Liberalism will say that though the Bible is full of myth, the Bible preserves the kerygma of the faith. Neo-Orthodoxy will argue that the Bible becomes God's word when it is the medium of the event of God's revealedness. In other words, when the Bible is the means by which the revelation of God in Christ becomes known to you when it becomes revealed, then the Bible is God's word. But technically speaking, revelation proper, specific revelation, uh, is the self-revelation of the Son. So in many respects, fundamentalism finds an ally in neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy raises a powerful and substantive theological and philosophical critique to Protestant liberalism, one that is arguably weightier than the historical critiques that are raised by fundamentalism. However, neo-orthodoxy would also critique fundamentalism in that disputing the question of the Bible's reliability by appeal to historical arguments remains trapped in the same emphasis on natural theology, on trying to resolve our knowledge of God based on our use of historical tools and human reason. For neo-orthodoxy, the problem is fundamentally that of finite human beings being unable to know God unless this is a knowledge provided by grace. And so therefore, neo-orthodoxy has turned away to some extent from the sort of apologetic methods that you'll find in Protestant fundamentalism. And therein lies much of the critique that you'll often find against neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy is thought to be all fine and well when it comes to those who believe, whereas those who do not believe might find very limited apologetic benefit from neo-orthodox perspectives. You can't easily convince somebody to become a Christian by merely insisting that in the Bible they can have the invent of God's self-revelation. Of course, the neo-Orthodox would be fine with that. They'll say, we can't persuade, using human reason, anyone to believe in God, for if human reason is decisive, it is not God that they know. So the absence of apologetics from the standpoint of neo-Orthodoxy is quite acceptable. Finally, we'll see that though all three groups affirm the Bible as the holy text of Christianity, and affirm some notion of the doctrine of revelation, each of these groups uses such terminology in radically different ways. So when you're reading modern theologians, arguably after the 1800s, you need to be quite careful in stopping to make sure that you understand what they're meaning by the various theological terminologies that they use, because the same terms may carry quite different significance among different theological perspectives. So that is a bit on the doctrine 
of Revelation in a nutshell. I wish we had time in class for you to weigh in and share your own perspective about where we stand on this debate, but fortunately you'll have time in your book response to Jay Gresham Matchin. So hopefully you'll get that done and in on time. Feel free to incorporate a little bit of course materials there. And while you're working on that, I hope that this has been of some benefit to you. Next week, we'll be doing some wrap-up content and exam review. Until then, though, be well.